The distraction that is an acquisition for the acquiree is greater than anyone could imagine. It's hard from an acquirer perspective to understand the disruption to a business that is undertook when something like this happens, particularly at this scale. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Backbone, a podcast exploring the journey of finance and operations within tech companies. I'm your host, Shabam Data at Shabam on Twitter. If this is your first episode, welcome, and thanks for checking it out. For those returning listeners, I'm so glad you're here. I hope that you've subscribed, rated, and reviewed the show on whichever platform you're hearing this now. It would mean so much to me and help spread the stories of these amazing finance leaders we feature on The Backbone. Onto the show today, I'm thrilled to welcome Oliver Bell, Chief Financial Officer at Springbot. Based in Atlanta, Springbot provides advanced e-commerce marketing technology for small to medium-sized retailers. At Springbot, Oliver oversees finance, legal, HR, and revenue operations. Prior to Springbot, Oliver spent four years leading finance and operations at Braze, formerly AppBoy, leading the company through multiple funding rounds, including its most recent $80 million raise in September of 2018 at $850 million valuation. Before Braze, Oliver led the revenue operations team at Buddy Media, which was purchased by Salesforce for close to $700 million in 2012. Post-acquisition, he spent about three years leading a variety of teams inside the Salesforce Marketing Cloud. A Boston native, Oliver graduated from Harvard College, where he also received his MBA. And so enough from me, let's get to today's episode with Oliver Bell, CFO at Springbot. Hey, Oliver, thanks for coming on The Backbone this evening. I wanted to uh, get started. I know we've got lots to cover. So you've been at the intersection of finance and technology now for over 15 years, uh, from starting as a finance manager at Google, then moving to Buddy Media, which got acquired by Salesforce. We'll talk a bit more about the acquisition a bit later. But most recently, you were the SVP of finance and operations at Braze prior to your current gig as a CFO of Springbot. So talk to me about your journey into tech and finance and how it all really started for you. Sure. And thanks so much for having me. I appreciate you doing these podcasts and giving a lens into the the finance organization at startups. I think it's great. Sure. I'm happy to talk about my journey. I spent most of my career in New York and after business school or throughout business school, and I was looking for the next job, you know, I was really looking for one of the cooler companies to join at the time, and that was Google. And so I landed a job as a finance manager at Google uh, in New York. They had really pushed me to be in the Mountain View uh, area where the headquarters was. Um, and I had strenuously pushed back to stay in New York. I was an East Coast guy. And so I fought them kind of tooth and nail to be one of their first finance folks in New York. Um, at the time, it was a few hundred people. And I ended up spending close to four years at Google uh, in the New York, New York office working with a bunch of their different media properties. And that really was my foray into the startup world. At the time in New York, there really wasn't much of a startup scene in sort of the late 2000s. Um, it really started picking up around 2010-11, which is when I made the leap from Google to a company called Buddy Media, which you mentioned which was a social media platform uh, for large enterprises. And I was there for about a year. And then, of course, uh, Salesforce came a-knocking, which I think we'll talk about in this this podcast. But uh, I was there for about a year, and then Salesforce uh, purchased us uh, for a big number. And uh, we had 
So we got integrated into what became the Salesforce Marketing Cloud. And so I spent three years inside Salesforce doing a variety of different roles, which included working on the integration team, uh, pricing team, as well as just kind of the go-to-market strategy for Buddy Media. Radiant 6 was another company. And then, of course, Exact Target came on board uh, a couple of years down the road. So spent about three years there and then got the itch again uh, to join uh, to join another startup and found a company that was intriguing. Um, it was called Appboy at the time and now Braze, which was about 40 people when I started. And I came in to run all their finance and operations. Uh, and to imagine there was very little <laughs> at that stage. Their thesis was really that you know, they could really find a wedge with, within the mobile marketing community and, and, and build a product that uh, engaged with consumers uh, and that was fit for kind of the mobile economy. And so we spent a lot of time building products for apps and, and kind of running their marketing back end. Um, so fast forward through that, I spent about four years at Braze, went through a bunch of financing uh, and came out the other side. Uh, in between that, I moved to Atlanta. And uh, so I've lived in Atlanta for about two years, uh, but worked still at Braze and commuted back and forth in that function. And then finally, recently, um, about two months ago, joined Springbot. Well, that's quite the journey. Now, uh, tell me about uh, Springbot. What does the company do and what is it all about? And then um, after that, if you can spend some time talking about like why you decided to join Springbot. Yeah, sure. So Springbot, um, I think part of its mission as it started, it's a six-year-old company and its mission was always to kind of level the playing field for the SMB retailers uh, to compete with uh, some of the big box retailers and some of the large players in that space. And so we wanted to build technology and a marketing platform that really could enable small business owners and the SMB segment to run powerful marketing campaigns and understand attribution for their e-commerce uh, stores, um, both online and offline. And we, we feel like we've done that. What were some of the reasons why you, why you specifically chose to take on the challenges uh, joining Springbot? Yeah, and I've, I've certainly been excited to, to join the Atlanta tech community. It's, it's, it's very up and coming. Um, quite a few uh, tech startups now have, have raised some money and uh, done quite well here. So I was excited to, to, to really kind of join that community um, as, as me and my family live here. So um, that was part of it. But the other attraction, I think, uh, was just I, I've worked in marketing SaaS now for kind of eight to nine years, uh, first on the social media side, then kind of on the customer engagement side for enterprise. And now I think it was a challenge for me to understand the SMB space, which uh, has some similarities, but obviously the customer profile, profile is quite different. And so I thought it'd be a fun challenge to build a company and be in the CFO seat uh, and really kind of scale a business um, built on the back of our SMB retailers. Um, so I thought that was quite exciting. And Springbot at the time, you know, I think it was also unique in the sense that we had raised quite a bit of capital. We'd been through a, a Series C round, which we did back in October. And so we'd raised about $35 million since inception, which was quite a bit of money for an Atlanta-based company. And the CFO seat was open, and I was happy to start engaging and working with the, the strong management team that we have in place. I want to go back in time a little bit to your, your time at uh, Buddy Media now. And so what was that experience like? Like, you know, leading up to the acquisition and exiting to Salesforce, I think it was over $600 million acquisition. And so if you could like take me behind the scenes a bit uh, to the months leading up to the acquisition. Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I had been, like I said, I joined Buddy Media, which was uh, headquartered in New York. We had offices in, in San Francisco and London. It was about a little under 200 people when I joined. It was quite sizable. I think we were probably in the kind of 30 million ARR range. Uh, we had just 
Ray as a Series D round, taking on a role of uh, a little more on their operations side and the revenue operations team to lead that function and really to try to professionalize our go-to-market team and really ensure that we had the best quality data to run our organization. Um, and I did that for about a year, uh, or a little less than a year. Uh, and then I was, you know, taken into a taken into a room and told that uh, a diligence process was about to start, which you, you could imagine was quite what a surprise to me. Um, we had it was interesting though. We had hired a, a CRO about three months prior. She came from Salesforce, and so that was maybe our first indication that uh, we had a mole on our hands. But it was it was an exciting time. I mean, I you know obviously the the um, the space was quite hot. Uh, the, so social media marketing. Um, this so this was back 2000 uh, what was it 2012 when the when the acquisition happened but um, you know there was a company called Vitru which actually was Atlanta based um, that got purchased by Oracle and a company called Wild, Wildfire which got purchased by Google this was all in the span of about three months it was I think the third to go and so there was just a frothiness to social media in general because um, I think market this is a new toy for marketers. Uh, large enterprises were just starting to understand what Facebook really meant to them. So you can imagine sort of the Salesforce oracles of the world that are trying to now develop, you know, the early stages of marketing cloud. This was really attractive to them because Buddy Media worked with large scale enterprises uh, like PNG, uh, like uh, Ford, you know, like Starwood Hotels. There were, we had really big multinational names that we work with. Um, and that was very attractive to Salesforce because they really couldn't speak to those type of companies. Um, you know, the B2C, they were very B2B focused. And so, um, you know, I think this, that, that kind of gives you a lens into uh, the acquisition price, which was, uh, which was uh, quite frothy. Uh, but, it, you know, it was that kind of time when Facebook was super hot and we knew that brands had to be in social. And, uh, you know, customer and SaaS businesses like Salesforce had to be in the so had to have a play in social, and so Buddy Media was kind of the the category leader in that space. Um, and so the diligence was, uh, from a finance perspective, uh, the diligence was quite quick. I mean, it was about a month. Uh, but you know, the the always the tricky part in in the finance seat is not letting on to others, uh, sometimes on your team, but more importantly to other employees, what's going on. And so a lot of those diligence meetings right. were really behind closed doors. I mean, quite literally on a different floor of the building, um, you know, and, uh, you know, you toil away for about a month, but it was, um, it was fairly quick given the deal size. Uh, but I think there was just conviction from Benioff and others that, uh, you know, we were the right company for them. So, you know, looking back, what would you say were some of the things that Salesforce as an acquirer did really well? And what were some things that in your mind that they could have done better to go through that acquisition process? It's a great question. And I could spend hours on this because uh, I've been asked it a lot. You know, you know, we were, <laughs> we were one of the early acquisitions. Salesforce has done quite a few since then. Uh, but what was special about Buddy Media was, as I mentioned, this was really Salesforce's first foray into marketing and to a B2C world and working with marketers. And one of the challenges that we had uh, was that marketers are fickle, they're unpredictable, they don't always buy when they say they will, you know, and, and Salesforce is really was originally used to selling into IT professionals that, you know, had buying cycles that were predictable and they had budget, et cetera. And this, this now, now comes a company that had working with marketers and working in the social media space where, you know, you really had to kind of start to, or you really couldn't easily justify ROI. And so um, budgets were fickle, it was hard to forecast. And so one of the big challenges we had was just that 
the cultures of a kind of a, a B2B machine coming up against, um, you know, the marketing uh, wing and, and working kind of in, in the B2C lens was, or B2C mm-hmm. lens was, was really difficult uh, to integrate. Um, and so that presents some challenges for sure. Um, I think what Salesforce is phenomenal at, which is no secret, is that they just run a, a fantastic uh, Salesforce. I mean, they, they just know how to run sales cycles. They have all the tools at your disposal to enable sale, a sales team um, and to you know ensure as much predictability as you can into the business. And so they injected that kind of culture and DNA. And I was part of that because I came on kind of as the, the finance lead for that uh, combined marketing cloud at the time. Um, and so, you know, I really learned firsthand kind of just how to run uh, a true SaaS business from the best. Um, and that was, and that was great. But, um, but culturally um, it was tough to integrate and uh, we, we also, just to take you back in time, um, this was a year prior to their big exact target acquisition for billion, right. which came out about a year later. And that obviously, uh, you know, they became kind of the anchor for what became the Salesforce marketing cloud. Uh, but it was, you know, it was a big distraction because we were trying to build a business on our own, you know, at least the kind of ex-buddy media folks. Um, and then along came exact target and we had to integrate with them and learn their process and meet a bunch of new leaders. And so there was just a lot of change and that's really difficult to focus your employee base. And from a finance perspective, just, a you know, or a financial operational perspective, obviously, very difficult to cobble together all those businesses uh, and tell a cohesive story and tell a consistent story. Yeah, it's almost like you have to go through you know two integration processes in very quick succession. First, you get uh, integrated into Salesforce, and then along comes Exact Target, and like you said, you have to in- integrate into Exact Target's processes. So it's like a, a bunch of integration work back to back. Absolutely. Yeah, and and so that that's really cool to to hear that perspective. Now, looking back, what were some of the things that you think are often just overlooked in acquisitions of this size and scale, just in general, not necessarily particular to Salesforce and, and yeah. Buddy Media, but in general. Well, I, I touched on one of the ideas and I'll, I'll sort of double down on it, which is that um, the distraction that is an acquisition for the acquiree is greater than anyone could imagine. And, and it's hard from an acquirer perspective to understand the disruption to a business that is undertook when something like this happens, particularly at this scale. And so what I see companies, acquirers often say is that we're going to leave, you know, this business we just purchased, a standalone business, they'll operate independently, they'll keep their management team, etc. That rarely happens. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that Salesforce, you know, sort of tried to live through that mantra, although they said that quite a bit. And I think they did better than maybe an Oracle, which, you know, no, sort of notoriously brought companies under their wing quite quickly. You know, manager, uh, you know, your, your co-founders would leave, uh, your CEO, you know, would leave. And there's, there's just a lot of management turnover as well as obviously adapting to new culture. And employees are, of course, wondering what it all means for them. Will they keep their job? What does their equity position look like? And, you know, how does it all work? And, and you know, it's really, really hard to focus a team as they come on. And so building... Now, building that into an MA model, understanding, you know, purchase price as a result of that is hard uh, because so that's some of the softer side of things. But I do, you know, I do think just from an MA perspective, I mean, we really, you know, as you mentioned, we really, I, I was part of uh, it was sort of a whirlwind uh, of MA. And, um, you know, it was, it, it, it took us a, a couple of years to kind of get our bearings uh, and really, you know, start and ensure that we had. 
um, consistent processes that people understood and then people were bought into and kind of weren't looking a lot of different directions and worried about their, their own employment. So, you know, I think that's, um, I think that's that's critical to think about. Yeah, for sure. Now, switching gears from M&A and exits to now fundraising, I want to go back to your time uh, just recently at, at Braze. Like you mentioned, you were there for four years. Um, the company was 40 people and about like 5 million in ARR when you had joined the company. Now, when you left recently, it, it had scaled up to 300 people. So, you know, needless to say, the company experienced significant amount of growth during your tenure. And while you were there, you led three fundraising rounds of a total of $100 million in capital raised, um, including the latest uh, Series E round in September at an $850 million valuation. So, you know, a lot of growth in your time at, at Braze. So, talk to me about the lessons that you learned from fundraising and the biggest takeaways that you got from this uh, experience at Yeah, Braze. I had a fantastic time uh, at Braze. I mean, you, you hit all the right notes. Um, it really, uh, the numbers tell a story. I mean, we really scaled this business uh, quickly, efficiently. You know, we were responsible in how we grew it, but still had to under, undertake rapid growth and the challenges that came with that. So, as you mentioned, when I started, uh, there was no finance team. We had outsourced our finance team at the time, uh, 40 people. And so I was, you know, employee one of that group and uh, built built a team up to about 12 people when I had left. Um and, and you're right, we went through three fundraising rounds, and these were some of the top VCs in uh, Silicon Valley and, and the East Coast with sort of Battery Ventures, Iconic Capital, Meritech Partners uh, were all, uh, were all uh, leads on our, on our investing rounds. And so, um, you know, it was, um, I learned quite a bit, I, I would say, uh, first and foremost, um, you know, we, Part of my job, similar to Buddy, but part of my job early on was to ensure that we had conviction in the data um, and that you know there was there was credible backing and we understood all facets of not only our customers ourselves, uh, you know what story we were trying to tell with our numbers, and that there weren't any cracks, uh, you know, in that process. And so to get in front of a, a battery ventures and um, try to tell a story, obviously, you know, they see a lot of companies, and so you know, we really had to work a lot on our messaging and what our retention numbers look like and how to tell that story, even at a early basis. Um, and we had a very consistent thesis about what we were trying to do in the market. And that, um, and that conviction, I think helped us tell the story in a fundraising process throughout and throughout our cycles. Um, and you know, one of the things we knew, uh, in fundraising, I think it's important to learn as a finance leader is that of course the top VCs anyways, and certainly most anyone who uh, are doing their job well are looking at all your competitors in your space. And so we knew our competitors well, sometimes the VCs right. knew them even better because they were doing diligence, uh, you know, similarly in I think understanding, kind of, you know, understanding from a valuation perspective and just kind of where folks head are is really understanding where you sit in the space and do it does your conviction of where you sit from a you know category perspective meet, uh, meet the thesis of what uh, what your you know investors are, are looking at as well and so um, you know once once for Braze we had conviction that we were indeed the category leader and, and both kind of scale uh, but also you know, product features and also just what our customers were saying. Um, and, you know, from win rate perspective, once we had conviction that we were, we were a category leader in our space, um, then we really had our pick of the litter. I, I think to some extent from a investor standpoint, then we could really go out and be proactive 
um, and be opportunistic with some of our fundraising. Cause clearly, I mean, you, you can see from the numbers, I mean, clearly, uh, we had money in the bank. Um, we were being opportunistic with some of our raises, the market, uh, the market that we were in, uh, and, uh, you know, true with a lot of sp- a lot of tech these days, but the enterprise, uh, you know, marketing tech was, was hot. And, um, you know, we, we took advantage of the road that wave and particularly on the mobile side, which is where, you know, AppBoy really uh, had its foundation um, and working with mobile marketers certainly exploded during the time that I was there. So, um, you know, we were really tell we could tell really a great story and we were competing or had our, had our sites on the Salesforce and Oracles of the world. Um, and, you know, cause they could provide similar functionality as what we were doing. Um, so very quickly we had to, as I mentioned about competitive set, turn from our startup competitors uh, to what we call legacy competitors or, or you know, legacy uh, players, I should say, uh, in kind of the, the true marketing clouds. And how, how, how does a company like ours compete with, um, you know, the enterprise marketing clouds, the public companies that are, you know, doing this at scale. And uh, I think telling that story well, you know, and doing that through a customer lens was really important. And I think really critical to our uh, fundraising success. I can't agree with you more on that. You know, the number of times I've heard the, the storytelling aspect of fundraising and a lot of times when uh, you may have a great product, you may have something that investors are willing to invest in, but if you don't tell the story the right way that resonates with the investors, um, it's it's hard harder to to raise that capital. Absolutely. What is the, the biggest misconception would you say about the finance function within a technology company? Yeah, uh, and I try to fight this misconception all all the time. Um, I, I I think, and I've loved the evolution of, of the finance function that I've seen personally over the last five years. But we really, I, I truly believe the finance functions, particularly at a startup, has moved from back office to kind of front office, shall we say, um, in, in many ways. Uh, I mean, finance now is. You're you're leading uh, go to market strategy. You're you're leading our hiring strategy. In some some cases, you're overseeing legal, um, and you know obviously from a fundraising capital management perspective, that's critical to any startup. And so I I think given the buzz around the public markets going to IPO, a lot of the M and A activity, finance has really had a front seat uh, to a lot of this. And I think. Um, you know, the misconception of kind of being the bean counter and behind the scenes and just kind of running the numbers uh, has been flipped on its head. And I've, you know, tried every day to, to work more as an operator, as an operator, you know, CFO and a partner to the management team or the board, et cetera, uh, and then really help run the business right. um, and be out in front. And I, you know, I encourage my team to do the same. And I think that's, I, I think we've seen that, that change uh, in companies who are now kind of, um, maybe not backing away, but maybe hiring more of an operator type CFO than a traditional CPA. And I think that obviously that trend worked well for me. That's great. No, I love that. That's awesome. So what I'd like to do now is jump into our quick fire round. And the way this works is I'll ask you a couple of questions. You have 10 to 15 seconds to respond to each. How does that sound? Okay. I'll try my best. All right, let's do it. So what is your go-to online resource for all things startup finance or growth finance? Oh man, I probably still use TechCrunch. I don't know if people still uh, still use that, but I got a lot of moves from there and, and Twitter basically is my news source uh, it's just on my daily feed so yeah sound, sounds uh, quite like mine as well so uh, what's your favorite productivity hack uh, I'll throw you a curveball and I'll say canceling meetings oh interesting okay what's one thing you don't leave the office before finishing I make sure that uh, any any recruiting cycles I have going with candidates are always met and responded to uh, I think that's critically important yeah for sure uh, what's one tech jargon that makes you cringe 
synergies I hate uh, only because I've, I've seen that word many times uh, through M&A dealings and not always seen them materialize. So I'll go with that. Fair enough. There, there must have been a lot of synergies in the Buddy Media yeah. deal. You probably heard that way too many times. Yeah. What's, uh, what's the best advice you've received so far in your career? Uh, yeah, I would say just just um, bucking the trend uh, and uh, really trying to f- find great businesses early on as an operator. Uh, I know many VCs try to do that, but uh, doing it as someone on the inside as an operator and finding great businesses to be scaling with, I think was always a, a mantra I've, I've tried to live by. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much, Oliver. This has been an awesome chat. And thank you for taking us behind the scenes of what it was like to be acquired by Salesforce while you were at Buddy Media, walking through a lot of those things that uh, you know Salesforce did really well and some of the things that are overlooked in terms of acquisition. So that was really insightful. And talking about your experiences at Braze and helping that company scale from 40 people to 300 people and raising $150 million in capital while you were there. So I've really learned a lot from this. And uh, thank you so much for, uh, for your time today. I appreciate the time. Thank you. And that wraps up another episode of The Backbone. What a fascinating discussion with Oliver Bell, Chief Financial Officer at Springbot. Check out some of the other awesome finance leaders featured on The Backbone from companies like Ecobee, Wealthsimple, League, and many more. Thank you for listening all the way through and joining me on this journey inside finance at a tech company. Until next time, take care.